a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 121 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to people working in or around the industry from all over the country and beyond. If you are a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast on your favorite social media platform. We are here as usual in the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom in Burnsville, Minnesota, and very little has changed since the last time we've been here in the Say the Damn Score studio in Burnsville, Minnesota. We continue to have our lifestyles changed by the COVID-19 pandemic, and there are still no sports. And because this week's interview with Tim Healy, the radio voice of Arizona State for football, basketball, and baseball, uh, went longer than normal. It's almost an hour and a half conversation. I'm going to keep this intro very short, but I do want to say before we get into this that this is one I've had in the can for a while. We actually recorded it in early April so if there's a few things that sound dated, you'll know why, but uh, we're still mostly in the same situation, especially with him being in Arizona with the spike of cases. Uh, he's still, I'm guessing, not going out very much. So his answers on the pandemic likely still apply. And he also recently had surgery, nothing uh, dangerous or anything, but I do want to wish him a quick recovery and success moving forward during this crazy time. But anyway, without further ado, our guest today is Tim Healy, the voice of the Sun Devils. And Tim, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Logan. It actually gives me a chance to use my voice once again with uh, being a college sports broadcaster with no sports to broadcast. Uh, the voice gets a little bit rusty, so it's actually good to chat with you and uh, talk about our business and uh, boy these are crazy times and I'm like you confined to quarters out here in my home in uh, Mesa Arizona the weather has been fabulous out here you've been involved in play-by-play -play since the 70s so your your craft is going to be pretty well refined by this point but with no games and nothing going on uh, what do you do to stay sharp well I mean uh Things like this, to be honest with you, uh, and uh, also uh, a former boss of mine, uh, a former general manager of our uh, radio property at Arizona State is now a teacher there, and he has asked, uh, he has assigned one of his, I think he teaches a class in sports marketing, and he's assigned his students the uh, task of uh, getting a pseudo job interview with uh, a potential employer in the business, and he has directed one of his students that would love to get into play-by-play -play to contact me, 
and uh, I'm going to basically interview him for a pseudo production assistant job with our network. Uh, you know, it's things like that. And then I'll be recording some uh, spots for our flagship radio stations because we've actually started re-airing some of our best game broadcasts uh, from uh, basketball and baseball and, and I think football, too, in recent years, which is a great idea for stations to fill the time because, for instance, the radio station that carries our Arizona State baseball broadcast was anticipating having 35 college baseball games on the air uh, in late March, April, and throughout the month of May. And now they've got all that programming time with no programming. And uh, so it makes a good filler, as, as the networks are doing. You know, ESPN, NFL Network, they're all showing rebroadcasts of uh, great games. I was just watching late last night on NFL Network the rebroadcast of the second uh, Giants-Patriots Super Bowl game, the one that the Giants won in Indianapolis. Um, so, you know, it's a great idea for our radio station to do uh, to do likewise. And, uh, uh, and it, at some point, I'll start delving into my notes and getting uh, things prepared, anticipating and hoping for the start of a college football season this coming fall, and Arizona State's football team would enter a 2020 season with very high hopes uh, in their third year under Coach Herm Edwards. So uh, we'll start doing that and hopefully be able to put that research to good use come September. When's the last time you've left your house? Well, it depends on how you mean left your house. It's funny. Actually, I think it was two days ago. I, I The one good thing about this, Logan, is that I've gotten into walking. I'm 68 years old, but I have no plans to retire. Uh, everybody tells me I look like 10 years younger than or even maybe more than what I actually what the driver's license actually says. And I've gotten into walking and I've been walking about four miles uh, every day, but about a little over an hour because I walk at a pretty good pace. In fact, as an Arizona State guy, uh, Sun Devil fans would appreciate the fact that at the end of my uh, approximately one hour and uh, 10 minute walk, I check my cell phone to see how many miles I walked. And each day I've been walking 4.2 miles. And uh, of course, the significance of that number for Arizona State fans is that the number 42 was the number worn by the late, great Pat Tillman when he played uh, football at ASU in the mid-90s. So any anything to honor Pat Tillman, and it, just, it, it was just uh, kismet, I guess you could say, that uh, you know I, I took my regular walk one day and then checked the cell phone you know, when it counts your steps and your miles, and it said 4.2 miles, and I almost got a lump in my throat, and I followed that same course every day. But uh, So I've been out of the house to walk. Arizona has a stay-at-home uh, uh, order that uh, Governor Doug Ducey put into effect as of uh, yesterday at 5 p.m., yesterday being uh, Tuesday, March 31st. And uh, But under the stipulations of that uh, declaration, you can leave your house to go to the grocery store, to go to the drugstore uh, and to go out and exercise. So I've been, uh, that's the best way to get out of the house for me is just to take my hour long walk with the weather being as great as it's been. In fact, two days ago, I think my wife and I went to the grocery store, actually to a couple of grocery stores, and it honestly felt like a date, you know, because <laughs> we were both excited to go out of the house and we went to not one, but two grocery stores. We actually went to a third. Uh, it's a store called Winco Foods out here. It's one of those bag your own groceries type places. 
and the news of Governor Ducey's uh, stay-at-home order about to take effect was starting to hit the airwaves. And I think a lot of folks started panicking, thinking it meant shelter in place, like they wouldn't even be able to go to the store. And there was a line extending out the grocery store, a line that was about 20 or 30 people long. And my wife and I said, no, we don't need to go here. There's nothing we need here. We'll go somewhere else. And, uh, um, you know, I think people were starting to panic just a little bit. But uh, uh, the stay-at-home order, really, Logan, hasn't hasn't been anything different than what I have been doing in my normal routine here the last uh, three weeks or so. I basically leave the house to take my walk, go to the grocery store, go to the drugstore, or go to Target. And that's pretty much it. Now it's time to dive into your career. And from what I read, you knew you wanted to get into sports broadcasting in eighth grade. So you knew from a young age. Was there an event or an it's a source of inspiration that happened at that time? What led to you uh, figuring out your path that early? Well, first of all, kudos to you, my friend, because you've got good information. I don't know where you found that, but that is the absolute truth. Uh, I was an eight-year Catholic school student. I grew up in uh, the northern Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., and as I tell the story, um, I w- it was a Friday afternoon in eighth grade. I-, I think it was sometime right around or before Christmas, not sure, and I, was, uh, I had a daydreaming issue back then, even though I was a good student, and it was almost dismissal time, and I was looking out the window sort of half daydreaming, and I thought to myself, I, I always loved sports and I played, you know, little league baseball and I played, uh, you know, basketball when I was in sixth, seventh and eighth grade. But uh, I, I kind of knew that I did not have a body and the physical attributes to become a great athlete. I was very coordinated, but I wasn't particularly strong or fast. And I just, uh, I just knew I wasn't going to be a, a professional sports or a professional athlete so I thought to myself this day when I was daydreaming, maybe I'll be a sports writer, have a, have a life or a career in sports. That would be fun. And so I made that decision to myself. And then about a week or so later, again, daydreaming on a Friday in Catholic school, I decided, you know what? It's more fun to talk than it is to write. So maybe I'll become a sports announcer. And lo and behold, um, thus it began. And I, the dream never died. And um, you know, I go on to college. I went to Penn State University and studied uh, speech broadcasting. And I began in um, television news, actually. Um, uh, I spent 26 years in the television news business before I got into play-by-play. And, you know, most guys, I don't know how you feel about yourself, but when you get to a certain age, I think most of us would like to be able to kind of be sort of macho and look back on their career and say, yeah, you know what? I have no regrets and I do everything the exact same way. But to be honest with you, I look back on my career and I do have regrets. Uh, I would, if I could, I would make one big change. I would have tried to get into play-by-play announcing much earlier in my career. I did not become the voice of the Arizona State Sun Devils on radio until I approached my 47th birthday. And so I would, you know, I did do some play-by-play before that. Uh, I was the radio voice of the Arizona Cardinals for one year in 1995, and I did Cardinal preseason exhibition games on television in, in the early 90s for about five years. And I was actually the first ever television voice for the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury for three years. 
But I got into all that play-by-play stuff when I was just about into my 40s and then the radio gig at Arizona State in my late 40s. And I wish if I had a do-over, instead of getting into television news, which I did, and it provided me a lot of wonderful experiences and uh, met some fantastic people and, you know, encountered and interviewed a lot of very interesting and high-profile people in that job. But if I had a had a do-over, I would try to get into play-by-play earlier, like right out of college. And so many of the students at Arizona State's uh, uh, world-renowned uh, Walter Cronkite School of Communication are getting wonderful opportunities now. You know, a lot of the students at ASU get a chance to broadcast Sun Devil baseball games on the uh, live on the university's website live stream uh, of those ball games, those home baseball games. And a lot of those kids get summer gigs going to the Cape Cod League or some of the summer college baseball leagues to broadcast games there. And that is just wonderful experience. And it's something I wish I could have afforded myself uh, back in the day. And if I had it to do over, I would try to get a job in a small town radio station or probably more to the point like a, a low a low division or low, like a class A minor league baseball team and uh, work my way up there. And, you know, in in that level, you're probably not only the play-by-play guy if you're working, say, for a Class A minor league baseball team, but you're also um, probably the public relations director, or you may be uh, selling tickets, or you may be in marketing or some other position with that team. But you learn so many different aspects of the job, and um, it's a great way to uh, learn the craft, too. So, um, but that's kind of a long roundabout answer to your point that uh, I did know in the eighth grade what I wanted to do. And it's interesting that how they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I have two adult children and the eldest of the two, my daughter, her name is Katie Garrick. She's 40 and she is a high school chorus teacher here in Tempe, Arizona. And Katie is exactly like me. She knew at an early age that she wanted to be a high school choral director and lo and behold, she went to Northern Arizona University and studied that craft. And, and she's now the choral director at McClintock High School in Tempe. And she is a phenomenal high school chorus teacher. And, but she knew at an early age, as did I, what she wanted to do for a living. When did you get your actual first play-by-play experience? Because I'm going to guess that while you were doing TV, you were probably doing freelance play-by-play on the side. Or maybe... You didn't until later on. I'm curious what the story and how you developed your play-by-play skills to the point where you could even apply for a job like Arizona State and be qualified. Well, actually, uh, the second uh, of your points is true. I actually did not do play-by-play. My, like I said, uh, my first job was at a radio TV station in uh, Salisbury, Maryland, and I was primarily a news reporter and anchor and a weekend anchor and also did some radio disc jockey work. My second job in the, uh, from 1976 to 79, I worked at the CBS television affiliate in my father's hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania, the famous home of Dunder Mifflin in the uh, NBC sitcom, The Office. Um, but uh, that was an interesting situation because at the time I worked there, the TV station was actually located, and this is the God's truth, in the basement of a Catholic high school. Scranton Prep, and uh, that was uh, that was an interesting three years, but it was strictly a news job. And then I I really got lucky in 1979 
through a contact I had at my station in Scranton. I, uh, a reporter that I worked with in Scranton knew the producer of the six o'clock news at the seat at the, at the time CBS affiliate KDFW TV in Dallas. And she told me that that station was looking for a weekend sports anchor. And even though I had not been a sports caster per se, when I anchored the weekend news in Scranton, I did the sports. And of course, sports was my first love in the first place. And I sent a tape and they hired a male model instead of me. But three months later, the job came open again and they hired me sight unseen. And that's how I got my break to get into sports. And I not only got the break, but I, I thought I'd have to go down and market size. It's from Scranton to get into sports from news. And instead, I end up in a top 10 market, Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, in 1979. So I was a weekend and uh, for a while, weeknight sportscaster in Dallas for four years. And then I moved out and became the sports director of a station in Phoenix. And uh, I ended up working at two different stations in Phoenix. And the way I got my start in play-by-play is um, I worked at a TV, the TV station I worked for as the sports director in Phoenix. I was there for three and a half years in the mid eighties. And it's the only job from which I was ever fired. I was let go just because at one point the station manager decided they wanted someone else doing sports. I think they wanted someone that they felt would show up higher in audience research Although the irony is that for the three and a half years that I was the sports director and weeknight anchor there, the station was a dominant number one in the market in the news in the news ratings at uh, six and ten o'clock. Uh, the station used to be known as Cool TV, K O O L, but when I went to work there in 1983, the call letters had changed to K T S P TV, and the station it's Channel 10 in Phoenix. And the station now is a Fox affiliate, but back then it was CBS. The the station manager who let me go was not the one who hired me. And the management team of the station there, the the ones that hired me, they went across the street to the ABC affiliate to try to build up their ratings. And when I got fired, I I was held to a non-compete clause, which meant that I had to not only Um, you know, I I was out of my job, but I couldn't get another TV job in Phoenix for six months. So I needed work. I moved in 1987 to Cairo TV, K-I-R-O TV in Seattle as a weekend sports anchor. And I was there for 19 months when in the late summer of 1988, the uh, people who originally hired me in Phoenix but did not fire me the ones that I mentioned a moment ago that went across the street to the ABC shop in Phoenix at the time, they bought out my contract and moved me back to Arizona because they had acquired the local television rights to Arizona State football and basketball. And Arizona State was coming off its first ever Rose Bowl appearance and Rose Bowl championship in January of 87. So interest in Sun Devil football was at an all-time high in the Phoenix area. So they had acquired the television rights, and the year that I was in Seattle was their first year televising the games, and their play-by-play announcer was none other than the late, great Ray Scott, who was uh, the longtime lead announcer for CBS on National Football League games and was famous for being the voice of the Lombardi-era Green Bay Packers and then became CBS's lead NFL announcer in the uh, 70s and I think even into the maybe the early 80s. 
And Ray was in semi-retirement at the time, living in Arizona. And when uh, this television station, KTVK TV in Phoenix, acquired the rights to ASU football, uh, they needed a play-by-play guy. So they, they brought Ray out of retirement, and he handled the play-by-play in 1987. But he had plans, Ray did, to move back to Minneapolis because he had also done a lot of sports casting work, I think, with the Minnesota Twins and the Vikings. And he was going to move back to Minneapolis and open a sports bar in downtown Minneapolis near the Metrodome. So the television station in Phoenix, KTVK, needed uh, to groom a replacement for Ray on as the play-by-play guy on their Arizona State package. And they knew, even though I didn't really have any substantive experience, they knew that I had always wanted to do play-by-play. And uh, they liked me personally. They bought out my contract in Seattle. They moved me back. And in the fall of 1988, I had the thrill of working as Ray Scott's color guy for the uh, Arizona State football and basketball season. We ended up televising most Arizona State football games live which is almost unheard of in this day and age where a local station can get the uh, package to televise its local major college football team live because there are so many networks anymore that have contracts with uh, conferences and such. And like out here, the Pac-12 networks televise virtually every Pac-12 football game that is not shown on ESPN or Fox or FS1 or one of the major networks. Um, We did most ASU football live. We did about eight Arizona State basketball games, and I got to do the color with Ray. Ray was my idol. He was my, he always had been one of my favorite announcers because I thought he was so uh, adept at the, uh, at building the drama in a game. And he was one of the first sportscasters who adopted and popularize the less is more theory of sports broadcasting and play-by-play, which is great on television, where you don't have to say a lot of words to describe a play. You let the picture do most of the talking. And, you know, the, the line that everybody used to say about Ray was the way he would describe a big Packers touchdown in the uh, 60s Lombardi era would be, star, this is Boyd Dowler, touchdown. He just described a 60-yard pass from Bart Starr to Boyd Dollar, and that's all he had to say because the pictures told the rest of the story. But because he broadcast that way, he could make any any sports event, even two last-place teams playing in December, he could make that seem like it was uh, high drama. And I just always loved listening to him, and now I had the chance to work with him for one year and learned a lot from him. And then when he moved back to Minneapolis in 1989, I got the lead play-by-play job uh, to do the Sun Devils on television that year. And that's basically how I started. And that, you know, the play-by-play job was just part of my overall responsibilities at the TV station. My main job was uh, being the weeknight six o'clock news or sports anchor on the six o'clock news Monday through Friday. But I just developed a passion for play-by-play announcing. I loved the craft. I loved doing it. It was exciting. Um, I felt like I was a fish out of water doing the sports on the nightly news because back in those days, in the late 80s and 90s, a lot of television stations uh, went to what I call uh, shtick sportscasters. Uh, You know, television stations are in the business of trying to get good ratings And they're trying to get as many people in their audience to watch their newscasts as possible. 
and yet the research, uh, the consultants that come in that are hired by TV stations to do research for them always spit back uh, data that indicates that the overwhelming majority of viewers on an evening newscast, on a local evening newscast or for a local evening newscast, are non-hardcore sports fans. So television stations faced the quandary back in those days of how do we develop an entire newscast, including the sports segment, that will draw the interest of the non-hardcore sports fans. So you started to see more and more local sports guys who wouldn't give you real great analytics on, you know, the teams, uh, you know, the football team's uh, big game the other day. Like, for instance, here in Phoenix, you wouldn't hear a real X's and O's dissertation of why the Arizona Cardinals won or lost their football game the day before, you might get more, you know, goofy highlights, you know, blooper type plays and and things of that nature. And I was more of a straightforward, I'm not really a flamboyant person in personality. So uh, I was more of an X's and O's straightforward kind of guy, the kind of guy that would provide the straightforward analysis of, uh, the day before's a big game or the upcoming game, that sort of thing. And I felt a little bit like a fish out of water doing sports on the local news, but in play by play, that's exactly what you have to be, you know, and I have a really good memory, uh, almost a photographic memory. And I could remember scores of Arizona state games from years ago. And that kind of talent or skill just seems to really help me in my play by play work. And I just feel like it's much more suited to my skill set. And so I did the television job for 10 years. And then in 1998, ASU's longtime radio voice, uh, the late Tom Dillon, Tom passed away in uh, 2008, but uh, he was very popular as uh, Arizona State's play-by-play guy for about 20 years, from I think 79 to 97. Um, He had to give up the job in a contract uh, dispute with the radio station that owned the rights and, you know, long story short, I was hired to replace him. So, and then after the first year, I was hired as a full-time employee by the new company that took over their radio rights. So, as I said, my entry into play-by-play came a lot later in my career than I wish it would have. But as they say, Logan, better late than never. <laughs> and it's been, uh, it's been a wonderful gig for me the last 22 years and hopefully many more years to come. So the moral of that entire story is that you should have worked on your male modeling. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's <clears throat> that's pretty much it. Because that's exactly, when I talked about shtick sportscasters, that's, that's exactly what television stations were looking for back then. In fact, one of the reasons, Logan, that I got let go by my station in Phoenix in 1986 was because um, one of the competing, as I mentioned to you, was basically they felt as though I didn't show up high enough in audience research even though it seems to me the ultimate audience research is who watches your news at night. And as I said, for the entire time that I was the sports director at that station, we were dominant, a dominant number one in the ratings, you know, but in any event, the added research that they do, the consultants research research indicated I didn't show up high enough in, in that research. I wasn't unpopular. It's just not that many people named me as their favorite guy. And they, the station managers where I worked were concerned because the local ABC affiliate where I ended up working a year and a half later, ironically enough, 
they had, they were a poor third in the ratings at the time. And in order to build up their ratings, they had just hired a sportscaster that they felt was a Tom Selleck lookalike. Cause but that was back in the days when Magnum PI was huge. <laughs> and Tom Selleck was the heartthrob of every woman in America. And, uh, and so they hired this guy um, who they felt looked like Tom Selleck. And, 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 and that was part of the shtick, you know, some guys got their, sports casting jobs because they were studs, you know, good looking guys that the women would like looking at, you know, and, uh, and that was, that was, that was part of the deal. Um, but yeah, that's, that's part of the story. <laughs> Maybe I should have been, a, I, no way I could ever be a male model. That's for sure. But yeah, there's just so many, that, that's the thing about our business as I'm sure you found out in interviewing guys like me through the years is that there are as many guys as you interview, there are probably that many different stories about how they got in the business um, I mean, my very first job, the, the one in Salisbury, Maryland, I literally walked in off the street for an interview. I was living in the D.C. area. Salisbury was about a two-hour drive from my hometown, and I was in the car with my girlfriend, who is now my wife, and one of my sisters, and we were driving to the beach town of Ocean City, Maryland, to meet my family. They were already down there. We were going to spend a few days at the beach. And I knew of this station in Salisbury, and you pass right through Salisbury en route to the beach when you're driving from the Baltimore, Washington area to Ocean City. And I was able to find, you know, this was before Google Maps, so I was able to find directions to the station somehow. And on a hot mid-August day, uh, God love them, my wife and my sister waited in the car for about 45 minutes while I walked in off the street to go into the station to see if they had any jobs. And they basically told me, no, we don't have anything open, but uh, can you come back? This was on a Tuesday. Can you come back on Friday and make a videotape for us? And I said, sure. So I got in the car and we all three of us drove back over to Ocean City. And I told my mom uh, what had happened. And you know, I was I was discouraged, but my mom said, oh, they must have something for you. They wouldn't tell you to come back here and make a tape, but they didn't have something in mind. And I said, I don't know, Ma, I don't think so. But anyway, I, the long story short, I drive in from Ocean City to Salisbury that Friday, go to the station. I make a videotape, you know, like a, doing a fake newscast or whatever. And then I sat out in the lobby for 45 minutes and waited. And then the station manager called me in and starts asking me uh, three questions. He said, uh, I'm trying to remember all the questions. I think one of them was how well... I work with others. How well do I take instruction or orders? And then the last question is, would you be willing to get a haircut? And when he asked me that, I think I knew I had the job because I don't think he was going to say, we don't have a job for you, but hell, you need a haircut, kid. So um, lo and behold, I said yes. And uh, they hired me for $150 a week to work a six-day uh, six week with Wednesdays off. And that was my entry into the broadcasting business. And I moved there about 10 days later and uh, had to rent a trailer in a trailer park for three months. And my parents were deathly worried about me every night because was out in the woods, not too far from, it was a kind of a rustic rural area, Salisbury, down on the eastern shore of Maryland. But uh, that's that's my starting story. Like you said, like you said, it's like for every pe person you interview, there's probably a different story, and it, it's really fun to hear all the different ways that people like me got in this business. It's a good thing that you weren't getting hired right now 
and they demanded you get a haircut with all the salons closed. Yeah, that's for sure. In fact, to me, that's been one of the, you know, if you're looking for a lighter vein on this very difficult time that all of us are going through, no one has really mentioned in the media, at least I don't think they have, how shaggy Americans may start end up looking in the next few weeks. Because uh, as you said, you know, here, actually out here in Arizona, I, I don't think hair salons or barbershops or beauty parlors, I think they're considered one of the quote unquote essential businesses that are still open. But I don't know that many people are making appointments. Those that are observing good social distancing certainly aren't. I had a haircut appointment uh, with the gal who's cut my hair for the last 15 years. I had an appointment Monday and I didn't go. And I don't anticipate going anytime in the future. So I'm going to be one shaggy dog by the end of April. That's for sure. Although I'm sure my wife and I can try to take turns doing each other's hair, but Lord knows how that will turn out. But uh, that uh, that is going to be an interesting uh, phenomenon to see how shaggy a lot of Americans are going to end up looking, at least the ones that don't, like I said, do their own hair at home. But uh, um, yeah, boy, if I needed to get a haircut to get a job now, I'd be in big trouble. huh? I've been in the middle of trying to go or grow what I call my virus beard and just to see if I can do it <laughs> at a time when it doesn't matter. And it's about two weeks in and it looks terrible. We'll see how long I can, oh, no. I can hold strong, but no, that's okay. Uh, it probably, it probably looks better than you think. My son <laughs> has a beard and, um, my wife, uh, likes clean shaven guys. So I tend to shave like every other day. So I'm, I don't know. I'm going to, go that route but uh it probably is kind of a neat thing for some guys to do almost as a testament or tribute to toughing out these uh tough times that we're going through right now very much so your path as you mentioned just about everybody's that i talk to on this show is different and yours stands out to me because just about everybody goes from radio where they learn descriptions and really carry get all that nitty gritty information into the call and then move mm -hmm. on to TV and take stuff away. Was it more difficult starting in TV where you have to be more minimalistic in your play by play and then learning all that descriptive uh, adjectives and verbs and having less time to weave in stories, all that stuff. That's a great question, Logan, because you just hit right on the head, the essential difference between television and radio play by play. And, I guess it was kind of unusual for me to go the TV to radio route rather than vice versa. But even though radio requires more of a play-by-play -play broadcaster, I actually found it to be a not horrifically difficult transition because I think, first of all, I think most of us that get in the business kind of have the gift of gab. You know, most of us that get into broadcasting are probably guys or women that like to talk you know, enjoy conversing by mouth and using words. And hopefully they've, you know, had good instruction in the English language and in grammar and uh, good vocabularies and so forth. But I think most people in broadcasting do like to talk. And in some ways, it would be harder, I would think, to learn how to restrain that natural inclination to gab when you're on television. And the best of the best are, and I cited Ray Scott, who to me was the ultimate example of that, uh, able to let the moment uh, and the pictures of a televised sports event do a lot of the talking. 
Vin Scully when he did uh, baseball games on television, you know, also was a master of that. And of course, his his most famous moment was arguably the most dramatic moment in baseball history, Kirk Gibson's uh, game-winning home run in game one of the 1988 World Series off Dennis Eckersley to lead the Dodgers over the A's. And uh, Scully's call is just so magnificent, you know, setting the drama of the moment because Gibson was hurt and barely could walk as he hobbled up to the plate and then worked uh, the count in his at-bat to three and two. And then almost just with a flick of the bat because of his power, was able to drill one. Uh, I was watching a show the other night where he was talking about how the scouting report on Eckersley was that when he gets you three and two, he's going to, especially if you're a left-handed hitter, he's going to try to throw you a backdoor slider. And that's exactly what he did. And Gibson whacked it into the right field seats. But Scully's ability to back off and let the pictures and the euphoria that engulfed Dodger Stadium at that moment uh, take over and tell the story. You know, so many uh, announcers, I think, feel the inclination to uh, put their mark on the moment by some uh, well-practiced phrase or that sort of thing when the real play is to just shut up and let the moment speak for itself. And I think a lot of guys have a challenge of learning how to rein in that natural inclination to talk uh, on television, whereas radio requires you to be more descriptive on every single play. But I think for those of us that like to talk and enjoy the art of broadcasting a game, that's the challenge that I love. In fact, one of the biggest compliments that I've ever had in my career was uh, in recent years here out in Arizona, I got to be friends with a gentleman who has been blind since birth. Uh, A wonderful man, his name was Gary Jerstad. He was from Iowa and actually learned how to play the piano despite being blind. In fact, his email address was the piano man. And he he passed away, sadly, in September of uh, 2018, I believe it was. Um, but it, when we started to be friends, he told me that I was his eyes and ears through which he followed Sun Devil Sports. And when you have a gentleman who hasn't seen anything in his life, uh, tell you that, I mean, it, it just almost puts a lump in my throat every time I even recount the story or recall the story. And to me, that's the ultimate praise, you know, for a radio broadcaster, because that is your job really is to paint the picture for your listeners. And a lot of our listeners out here at Arizona State, a lot of Sun Devil fans who have, you know, been complimentary of my work have said uh, one one common thing they've echoed is that they feel like they're watching the game when they listen to me broadcast it. And that's that's uh, just high praise indeed, because that's what your job is, to try to paint a picture in the mind of the listener so that he or she is able to almost see the game, even though they can't see the game or they're not at the game. And uh, I think a lot of the guys who and and men and women who do this job uh, to me, that's the challenge is to try to paint the picture verbally for your listener. And that's the challenge that I enjoy. So I actually enjoy doing radio more than I did uh, doing television play by play. And television was nice. But uh, and I enjoyed that experience uh, doing uh, five years of uh, then Phoenix Cardinals. Of course, they're now known as the Arizona Cardinals. 
this was the early 90s, uh, preseason games on television, and then uh, two years of doing uh, Phoenix Mercury WNBA games on television. But, uh, boy, radio, you just up the ante a little bit in terms of the responsibility of the announcer to paint the entire picture for the listener. And, uh, of course, in college sports, the good thing also about being a radio guy is that on radio, we do every game. We do every football game. We do every men's basketball game. And at Arizona State, we do 35 baseball games in a typical season. Uh, The college baseball season goes 56 games in the regular season, at least. Um, That's, of course, in a year when there's no coronavirus. But uh, in television, we would only do select games. But in radio, you do them all. And uh, now I'm a full-time employee, and we travel you know, at Arizona State, we travel on the team planes. We're part of the team travel party on all three sports. And so you almost feel like you're part of the group, part of the organization. And uh, that's that's a lot of fun. But it really is an interesting, uh, you know, for students or young people who might be listening and want to, to this podcast and want to get in the business. You know, I would tell them, you know, watch when sports goes back, gets back up and going again. Watch a televised uh, baseball game and then listen to a baseball game on the radio and notice the difference in the play-by-play commentary you get. Obviously, you should be getting a lot fewer words on TV and a lot more descriptive words on radio. If you don't want to answer this next one, you don't have to, and I don't want you to give specific information. But as a general rule in this business, there's more money on the TV side. And you moved from being in TV play-by-play and reporting to being on the radio at a pretty advanced age where I'm going to guess you had uh, kids in school. Did you have to take a financial hit? And if you did, what made it worth it? Well, not really, uh, you know, because in the job I had in television, I was basic. I wasn't really paid uh, for the play-by-play work. Um, I was... Um, I was basically, you know, paid as a staff sportscaster. And uh, in fact, one of the years, the one year I did the Arizona Cardinals games, I was actually paid nothing more above my salary with the television station because uh, the Cardinals games that year were being broadcast by a station that was owned, radio station, that was owned by the same family that owned the television station. So basically, I was, you know, I just continued to earn my full-time salary as a, you know, sportscaster at that TV station. It was considered basically part of my job. Um, and then when I took the uh, Arizona State radio gig, my first year uh, that I got the radio job for the Sun Devils was this uh, 1998-99 academic year. And I was for that year, I continued to work my television job and we reached an agreement with a television station that um, I'd sort of divided my time. I, in my first year, by the way, doing Arizona State, I only did football and basketball only because there was another sportscaster at the, uh, the flagship radio station, KTAR in Phoenix. It's the biggest uh, news talk station in the state of Arizona. And they do basically everything sports-wise here in the state of Arizona. They broadcast uh, the Diamondbacks, the Suns, the Cardinals, the Arizona Coyotes, and Arizona State football and men's basketball. Um, And at that time, they also did Arizona State baseball. And this was at a time when the radio station controlled the rights. 
And they, there was another one of their sportscasters that was interested in the play-by-play job at ASU. And because he didn't get the two big ones, football and men's basketball, they tried, I guess, in essence, to throw him a bone. They gave him baseball. So I only did football and men's basketball my first year. And so in 1998 uh, and early 99, during football and college basketball season, I basically worked out an agreement with the television station where I sort of divided my time Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. I worked for the TV station. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I worked uh, my radio gig because obviously college football games back then were always on Saturday afternoons or evenings. And in the Pac-10 conference, which is now the Pac-12, in basketball back in those days, the games, the conference games were always played on Thursdays and Saturdays. So it just kind of worked out that way. And so, and, and because of their own economics and the fact that my stature at the television station had been uh, taken away a bit because where I worked, this is kind of a long involved story. I'll try to simplify it, but I don't know if you remember, but back in the mid 1990s, around 94, I think it was a lot of television stations in the country swapped affiliations. There were, it was a massive thing, and I, I forget the full reasons for it, but um, it, it seemed like in every market there was a, the NBC affiliate would become the CBS affiliate or the CBS affiliate became the ABC affiliate. There was a lot of affiliation swapping going on all over the country. And in uh, 1994 and early 95, my station in Phoenix, KTVK TV, Channel 3 in Phoenix, uh, which had been an ABC affiliate, it lost its network affiliation completely and became an independent station. And the way when we were an ABC affiliate, the way our early evening news was configured was we would do a local newscast for a half hour newscast at five o'clock. And then at 530, we would carry uh, ABC World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. And then at six o'clock, we came back with another local half-hour newscast, and then did a half-hour late night at 10 o'clock. So we did half-hours at 5, 6, and 10, and I was the sports anchor on the 6 o'clock show, and our main sports anchor, a guy named Mike Chamberlain, did the uh, sports on the 5 and the 10. Well, when we lost ABC affiliation and became an independent and had no network newscast, what the station did was consolidate that early evening news block into a full hour and a half from 5 to 6.30. And they did a couple of sports hits on it. But Mike was their showcase sports anchor, the guy they wanted to showcase. So he became the sole sports anchor on that early evening news block, as well as doing the 10. And I basically became a sportscaster without a sports cast. So I kind of became, to use a baseball term, I became the station's utility man, like the utility infielder. You know, I'd fill in anchor, I'd report and uh, do things of that nature. And um, and so my stature at the station had been diminished, not through my own fault or through my own incompetence. And nonetheless, because of that and because of the economic situation they were facing, the station, I think, was kind of interested in cutting my pay. But uh, I think they liked me personally and didn't want to have to do that. But uh, when I got the Arizona State radio job in the summer of 1998, well, this gave them a perfect opportunity to uh, cut my salary at the TV station. But I more than made up for it with the money I got doing 
the freelance radio that one year. So um, it ended up, I ended up coming ahead financially in the short term. And then in uh, the spring of 1999, after I had been the voice of the Sun Devils in football and basketball for one year, KTAR, their, their rights uh, expired to, to hold the Arizona State Rights Package. And at that time, ASU Athletics decided to go the route that most college athletic departments do nowadays and hire what I call a third-party rights holder. Uh, Companies like uh, Learfield and uh, Learfield IMG College is the big one in the industry now. Those are the companies that come in and basically uh, manage a school's radio network and all the athletic department's marketable assets for the university. And I think generally the way the model works is that companies like this will guarantee a large lump sum fee in the millions of dollars to the athletic department. And then this company will hire salespeople to go out and sell the advertising, you know, sell the sponsorship packages, uh, you know, the commercials you hear on the radio broadcast, the signage you see inside the stadium, all of that stuff. And uh, at that time, they this group decided they also wanted to hire the play-by-play announcer as a full-time employee. And so in this uh, June of 1999, after 26 years in television, I left the TV business when I was hired as the full-time uh, radio voice at Arizona State. And that's when I got baseball added to my uh, list of responsibilities. So, um, and, you know, and so my salary was at one, you know, was set at that particular point. Uh, a couple of years in, I had to, for some reason, take a uh, significant pay reduction uh, I don't really know the full reason why, but uh, gradually worked my way back up. You know, the, the the one the one thing I would say is that I think in general, being a pro, the uh, play-by-play voice for a professional, a major league sports team, like a major league baseball team or an NBA team or an NHL team, is probably more lucrative financially than being the radio voice of a major college program. You know, the the one thing I like about my job. Logan, is the fact that I get to do three sports, you know, whereas if you were, say, the voice of the Minnesota Twins, then you're doing baseball, and that's pretty much it, unless you get yourself an off-season gig, which some of those guys do. In my job, I get I do three sports every year, and there's no time between. It's like once the school year begins with football camp in August, it's almost like running a race, and you're not finished until past Memorial Day, or if your college baseball team is good enough to go, say, to the College World Series, it might not end till late June, but you're doing football, and then in November, football and basketball are going simultaneously, and then in late February and March, basketball and baseball are going simultaneously, but I, I, I love the challenge and the opportunity to do all three sports, so, and, you know, and I was able to put two kids through college, and uh, they always had food on the table and roofs over their heads, and uh, you know, we've we've had a, a nice life and live in a wonderful city in the Phoenix area, and uh, all that's been good. And I feel uh, privileged to have gotten to broadcast all these years for Arizona State. So I want to talk a little bit about some of your big moments, and not necessarily about the plays themselves, but in the way you execute the broadcast. And there's two of them that I found out that really stood out. And I've in my I've been a play-by-play guy for 12 years now professionally, called one Hail Mary, and it was a halftime Hail Mary. So it wasn't a real Hail Mary. One of your more well-known calls 
is, I believe, called the Jail Mary uh, for Jalen Strong heaving it about 50 or catching it after a 50-yard heave. And I guess I want you to reset where you were had you called them before that and how had that either adjusted or not adjusted your approach to making that play? Well, uh, the, the first thing I would say is that, and that's the beauty to me of what we do is the unexpected. It's like somebody I've heard say about the game of baseball and I love baseball. Um, <clears throat> the beauty of it is every day when you go to the ballpark, you'll probably see or you may see something you've never seen before. And I think that's what happens in every sport we do. You know, the three that I do, baseball, football, and basketball. You know, you never know what night or what day is going to produce a game that could have an epic moment. And the moment can be on you in a heartbeat. And I guess that's the challenge as a play-by-play announcer to always keep your head in the game. Sometimes the toughest games to call are the ones where your team is getting blown out. And trust me, I've had way too many of those over the years at Arizona State. But um, you just never know when that moment is going to occur. And the challenge for a good broadcaster is to be ready for that moment. And that game it was an Arizona State-USC game. And the real interesting backstory to it all, Logan, is the fact that, that it was uh, Arizona State at USC. It was Saturday, October 4th, 2014. And it also happened to be my 200th ASU football radio broadcast. So it was a milestone game for me, just numerically speaking. And then it turned out to be this great, great football game. In fact, uh, uh, with about, as I recall, with about three or four minutes left in the game, uh, USC scored a touchdown that put them up, I believe, by nine points. And I think I actually said something in my commentary, something to the effect that that probably will seal the deal. One of my catchphrases out here is when the Sun Devils are wrapping up a victory, I'll say that seals the deal, Lucille. Uh, I didn't see, say Lucille, but I think uh, that touchdown pretty much I thought was going to end things. But then Arizona State quickly struck with about a 50 or 60-yard catch-and-run touchdown and got back into the ball game, and they were trailing 34-32. to 32, And they held USC. Anyway, the, the, the summon, the story is the Sun Devils got the ball back. And I, and, and, and I think I remember actually setting the scene as they took the field saying something, what the story was that they were, um, I think they got the ball back at their own 28 yard line with 23 seconds left. So I think I said something like they've got 72 yards to go, 23 seconds to get there and no timeouts left. So that is where they started. And then, uh, the Sun Devils quarterback, Mike Berkovici, was able to complete a pass that got him just past midfield to the, um, I think, the 46-yard line of USC. And then I think they may have uh, clocked the ball, you know, downed it to uh, stop the clock. And th- the drama at this point was not anticipating a possible Hail Mary touchdown. But the again, there are so many side stories sometimes that go into moments like this. The Sun Devils had a place kicker uh, who happened to be end up his career and still is to this point the leading 
all-time field goal kicker in the history of college football, Zane Gonzalez, who is now with the Arizona Cardinals in the NFL. And Zane was obviously, this was his sophomore year at Arizona State and a terrific field goal kicker. But of all the games in his four years, he, he missed one. He was suspended. And I, I, I don't know, if I, I guess it must have been a team rules violation, but he was suspended one game. And it was that game at USC. So ASU did not have their kicker, a guy who would go on to become the most prolific field goal kicker in college football history. And his backup was a fellow by the name of Alex Garut. So the drama in this moment isn't thinking there may be this Hail Mary attempt coming. It was, what are the Sun Devils going to do? Because with a score 34-32, a field goal would have won it for Arizona State. But yet they didn't have their number one kicker. Their backup kicker was the guy. He didn't have quite the range uh, in terms of leg strength that Gonzalez did. So a possible play with seven seconds left, that's how much time was left when the ball was snapped, was you know to try to pass the ball about 20 yards downfield, have somebody hopefully catch it, get out of bounds, and maybe kick a field goal to win it. And so we didn't know if that was going to be what they were going to try to do. And so all this is going through your mind, and you're mentioning it on the air as well. And then uh, they come up to the line of scrimmage, and Mike Bercovici fades back, and then he just heaves it deep. And it's obviously going to be a uh, winner-take-all attempt to win the game on a Hail Mary. And if you hear my call of the game, you know, I think I, I, think I say, and Bercovici airs it out deep downfield. And because of our vantage point of the Coliseum, our radio booth being high up, and we were kind of at the other end of the field from the end zone where this uh, pass was heading. I used binoculars to try to call the play to make sure I would be absolutely accurate on what happens and who the guy is that caught it or didn't catch it or deflected it or whatever. So I'm calling the play with binoculars. And in my field of vision and my binoculars, it's a Hail Mary pass, but I don't see any white-shirted ASU guys there. You know, the only guys in my field of vision are USC defenders waiting for the ball to come down so they could bat it away. And then, uh, you know, and that's, and you'll hear in my call, and there are no white shirts around. And then all of a sudden, Jalen Strong, the receiver, swoops into the picture, into my frame of view from my binoculars, plucks the ball out of midair, and steps into the end zone for the winning touchdown. And so we call the game and call the play. And it's one of the most epic moments in Arizona State football history. And I actually have the game ball uh, in the next room over from where I'm talking to you. I have it in the living room of my house because Coach Todd Graham gave it to me as a memento of my 200th broadcast. So how's that for a way for your milestone 200th broadcast to go? I mean, you talk about kismet or serendipity or whatever. I mean, what a, you know, that was just one of the most magical moments uh, in my life, you know, to have the game happen like that and the moment occur and to occur on a milestone broadcast for myself. And, uh, and you know, to this day, I guess uh, Sun Devil fans just get goosebumps watching that play and uh, listening, you know, to our call of it. And uh, I think Arizona State's longtime sports information director, Mark Brand, probably deserves the credit. He's the one, I think, that coined the phrase the jail, Mary, because of Jalen Strong. Uh, And Jalen spells his name J-A-E-L-E-N, so it became the jail, J-A-E-L, jail, Mary. 
And uh, it was a, just a marvelous, marvelous moment. And it was a, and not only that, but it ended up being a win that proceeded to spark Arizona State to a 10-win season. Because the interesting thing is that the Sun Devils the week prior had lost a game at home to UCLA. I think the final score was 63 to 27. So they're coming off an absolute shellacking in a Thursday night nationally televised game at home to UCLA. And, and and they're going into the den of the beast. You know, USC every year has teams that everybody thinks is going to win the national championship, and they certainly did back in 2014. And yet uh, the Sun Devils rose up, played a great game. It was, it, you know, exclusive of the Jail Mary. It was a great college football game. But that moment uh, stamped it an immortality in Sun Devil football history. And it was just kind of my privilege, you know, to have been a part of it. But I think the the moral of my story there is you just have to you just have to be ready. You never know. You really never know when the moment's going to hit. There's one other game that I want you to just briefly kind of walk us through the weirdness of the experience because you I, I think we're on the wrong end of it, but you called a game with a walk off balk in 2005 and. Yeah, that's just such a weird thing to happen. I'm just kind of curious how you handled that moment. Just, I think we were just flabbergasted. It was uh, it, 2005. It was uh, Arizona State baseball was playing their longtime postseason nemesis, Cal State Fullerton. You know, the, the two great programs playing in a best two out of three super regional in Fullerton, California. And uh, game one on a Friday night, Arizona State had a two-to-one lead going into the bottom of the ninth inning. And then I think a Fullerton runner reached base, and then one of their kids hit a triple to uh, score the tying run. So they've tied the game, and they've got the winning run at third, nobody out. They're probably going to win the ball game anyway. The only play for Arizona State was to walk the bases loaded intentionally and then hope you can get a ground ball to at least get a force out at the plate and then a strike, couple strikeouts or, you know, some combination of, of outs to uh, ex- extricate yourself from the jam and get to extra innings. But the play is to walk the bases loaded. And ASU had a relief pitcher and a good one uh, named Zachary Zinicola. And he was on the mound. And as he was issuing the intentional walk, I and I don't remember who the umpire was, but one of the umpires actually called Zinicola for a balk on one of his intentionally wide pitches. I'm, I'm, I think it was just a matter where Zach didn't come set for a full second. But in any event, um, you know, he calls a balk and the winning run scores and Arizona State loses in that fashion. And in a best two out of three uh, series, uh, that is critical, you know, because that immediately pushes the Sun Devils to the brink of elimination against a team that had eliminated them from postseason, I think, in two of the previous four years, uh, or actually three of the previous four. So, you know, it was just, it was incredible. In fact, it was so amazing that uh, my broadcast partner at the time, the late Bob Eager, a longtime uh, Phoenix sports writer and just a wonderful man who was my partner on baseball games for the first nine years that I did Sun Devil baseball on the radio. Uh, Because of the overflow of media for a super regional, we were stationed, 
our, our, our broadcast vantage point was actually in the stands right in front of the small press box at Goodwin Field, which is the home field for Cal State Fullerton. And sitting in the front row of the uh, stands right behind home plate for every game of that three-game Super Regional was actor Kevin Costner because Kevin Costner is a huge is a Cal State Fullerton alum and a huge uh, supporter and booster of the uh, Cal State Fullerton baseball program. And I, I I don't know if that was at a time when Kevin had just recently gotten remarried or something. I don't know, but he was right in, in the front row of the stands watching. You know, he came to what ended up being all three games of that weekend Super Regional. And as Bob Eager and I were going through our post-game show and still trying to figure out what in the heck we just saw, uh, Kevin Costner walked right by us and looked at us and smiled and just kind of shrugged his shoulders as if to say, who who can explain it? Or, you know, I have no idea what just happened, you know. And that's kind of the way we felt, too. Uh, just an uh, an unbelievable moment. And I, I recently on YouTube was able to see a clip of the ESPN telecast of that game. And the announcers uh, for ESPN were just going on and on about how could that umpire make that call and, and in that fashion determine the outcome of the game. You know, that, uh, you know, it's just almost like mind boggling that an umpire would throw him, interject himself into such a critical situation on what seemingly is such a picayune call, you know, but uh, I've never seen that before. I've never seen it since the, the good ending to the story is that despite such uh, suffering, such a gut wrenching loss in game one, Arizona state went on to win game two. And then in the all the winner take all the winner goes to Omaha, the loser goes home game three on Sunday afternoon, the Sun Devils fell behind seven to one, and then stormed back and won a thriller ten to nine, and won the Super Regional and did go to Omaha. And in Omaha that year, they actually, after losing Game One of the World Series to uh, a Nebraska team that featured uh, future New York Yankee Jabba Chamberlain on the mound, uh, the Sun Devils proceeded to win three consecutive elimination games in that year's College World Series, including arguably the greatest game in College World Series history, uh, an elimination game against home state favorite Nebraska, where the Sun Devils uh, had a first baseman at the time by the name of Jeff Larish, who is the number three all-time home run hitter in Arizona State history. And Jeff Larish that day became only the second player in College World Series history to hit three home runs in one game. And he hit one to left field. He hit one to center. And then with two outs in the bottom of the ninth and Arizona State trailing eight to seven and one out away from elimination, Larish belted one over the center field fence to tie the game, force extra innings. And then the Sun Devils won the game on the 11th inning on a bloop RBI single uh, by the score of nine to eight. And it was just an absolute epic of a of a baseball game. I was sure. at that game because I'm originally from the Omaha area and a big Husker fan. I was in the right field bleachers wow. for that game, and I don't think I've ever been more disappointed. I'm glad somebody got to enjoy it. Yeah, man, I, I remember that because uh, uh, if you'll recall, the um, Nebraska, I think it was a 5-4 ball game, and then the Huskers got a three-run homer in the top of the ninth inning, and I can't, I'm sorry to say, I can't remember the kid's name, 
but it was, I think, one of their outfielders. And the story with this fella is that his dad was uh, ill with cancer at the time. And sad to say, I think his dad ended up passing away a year or so later. But that kid hit a three-run homer in the top of the ninth, put the Huskers ahead seven to five. And then, um, and so we thought the Sun Devils were, you know, doomed to elimination in a heartbreaker. And as you recall from that day, Rosenblatt Stadium was packed and it was, you know, 24,000, I think 22,5 were Husker fans, obviously, uh, as it should have been playing in their home state. And then the irony is that a young man who ended up in future years being my radio broadcast partner for about five years, an infielder named Seth Donnans, was able to get on base to start the bottom of the ninth. He came around to score a run, um, you know, kind of small ball way, got around and scored to make it seven to six or eight or I forget. Yeah, I think it was seven to six. Yeah. And then um, in any event, um, uh, he scored a run and then that set the stage for Jeff Larish to pull off his dramatics. But that was just an unbelievable college baseball game. In fact, Logan, the uh, interesting thing is uh, three days later after the Sun Devils had been eliminated and uh, Bob Eager and I were flying back to Phoenix uh, from Omaha and we ended up flying on Frontier Airlines. I'd never flown Frontier Airlines before, <laughs> but I was, and we, and we go through Denver and it, it, Frontier Airlines at the time, this is 2005, mind you, that was the first time I'd ever seen an airline have a screen at each seat where you could get like direct TV. You could view it for 15 minutes. And if you chose to buy in, you know, you put in your credit card and you can watch like ESPN or whatever. And so I did that on the flight home and from Denver to Phoenix, uh, I decided to watch ESPN classic. And what do you think was the sports event they were showing on ESPN classic that time? It was game. It was that ASU Nebraska game from Omaha. It was an instant classic from three days earlier. So, uh, I mean, that was, uh, I mean, I still get goosebumps recounting that game. And that 2005 uh, Sun Devil run that included that super regional victory at Cal State Fullerton and the three elimination game wins in Omaha, that remains among my top five ASU sports thrills in the 22 years that I've been the radio voice here. There's one thing I want to make sure we get to before we go on. And in 2013, you kind of had... A little bit of a scary health issue where you had a very short bout with uh, something called transient global amnesia where you were just doing prep one day and couldn't remember what you were doing for just like a couple hours. Uh, what was that experience like and how did that uh, – obviously you've been doing a lot of games since. It hasn't been a long-term issue. Just what was that like? That had to be a scary moment. Yes, it was. Um, you know, was, you know, I, I'm a savant with dates, and luckily I didn't completely lose my memory. It was October 9th, 2013, a Wednesday, and Arizona State's football team, we had just played the previous Saturday in Arlington, Texas, at the Cowboys Stadium in a game against Notre Dame. It's actually a great game. Arizona State lost 37-34. But, so we had traveled, and, uh, you know, but I've been traveling with the uh, Sun Devil teams for 30 years. So really, I don't think any particular fatigue or anything like that, but it was a Wednesday ASU football teams at the time and still do under Herm Edwards, but Todd Graham was the head coach. Then they, the Sun Devils practiced in the morning. So they would wind up practice around 1130 
And then I would, you know, be over there and I would grab my uh, post-practice interviews. I'd record a couple player interviews that we would use clips. Uh, we'd select some clips from those interviews and use on our pregame show. And ASU was playing Colorado at home the following Saturday. And so I went to practice and got my interviews. And I live a short drive, about a 15-minute drive from uh, the Arizona State campus. So I, you know, got done, came home. I think I had some lunch and was working on my Colorado spotting board for that week's game. And at 2.45 that afternoon, I had a physical therapy appointment. I was going through physical therapy for some core strengthening in my lower back at the time. And um, the physical therapy appointment was about, you know, about a 15-minute drive from my house. And I just remember late in the area, around, I don't know, it was about 2.15, 2.20, I looked down on my watch and said, oh, crap, i got to get going for my PT appointment. So I hurried and put some exercise clothes on. I got in my car, and I remember all this uh, to this point. And then I drove to the uh, PT place and got there right about at 2.45, the time of my appointment. And I remember going into the front office and paying my $25 copay. And then I walked into the exercise room to begin uh, my exercises, and I tell people I walked away from the counter where I paid the copay and walked toward the exercise room. And I ended up walking into the twilight zone because my next memory after paying my copay was about four hours later sitting in the stroke unit of Banner Desert Hospital in Mesa, Arizona, which is about five minutes from my house. And I do not, did not, and still have not, uh, I, I don't remember anything that occurred in the approximately four hours in between. Now, what I was told, obviously, since I do not remember, and, I, and it's not like I passed out. I was I was waking, awake, fully awake, uh, alert, functioning. Um, I, I was told later that I started doing my physical therapy exercises and started behaving incoherently. And one of Arizona State's orthopedic doctors who happened to be in the facility at the time, because where I went for my PT was in the same facility as the orthopedic group that Arizona State uses used at the time for its student athletes. And uh, one of the team orthopedists, an excellent orthopedic doctor, Dr. Anakar Chabra, he was uh, a couple weeks later on a football road trip. He was telling me that I was talking gibberish when uh, he got in because they brought him in to look at me. And they made the decision to uh, call my wife at her job. My wife worked at the time as a Catholic school secretary. About She was probably about a 15-minute drive from uh, the uh, place where I was having my physical therapy. And um, they, told, they told her to uh, come and get me because I was, they said, behaving incoherently. But uh, the physical therapist that called, as I've heard the story recounted by my wife, she spoke with a fairly alarming lack of sense of urgency, you know, just real, yeah, you know, I think your husband, he's kind of acting a little bit weird and maybe you should come and this and that, when the reality is this could be a guy that's having a stroke. So my wife said, I'm on my way to pick him up, but in the meantime, uh, you have my permission to call paramedics if you need to. And so she came to get me, and for whatever reason, they never called paramedics. And she had to work her way through late afternoon traffic. She came over, got me, and uh, started taking me to the hospital. 
And at that point, she said that I was exhibiting one of the classic symptoms of this kind of amnesia where you repeat things in a very low, monotone, repetitive voice like, where are we going? What are we doing? Uh, Did I go to practice today? Um, Just repeating the same things over and over, very monotone, you know, no sense of excitement or urgency, just real flat, monotone tone of voice. And she said that uh, she was wondering if she should pull over to the side of the road and call an ambulance at that point. But she was able to make it through traffic, get to the hospital. They got me admitted and did a CAT scan and then admitted me to the uh, stroke unit of the hospital. In fact, she, she said, if you ever go to a hospital and you want someone to be seen very quickly in the ER, tell them you think the person's having a stroke. Because from the time she dropped me off at the entrance, went to repark her car, and then came back to the hospital, in that short period of time, they had already administered a CAT scan to me and admitted me. And uh, so I was in the hospital. And about four hours later, around it was I guess it would be around 6.30 that evening, I started, I, I got my memory back. I was sitting in a hospital gown and a hospital bed in the stroke unit of this hospital. And my first memory is my longtime ASU football broadcast partner, Jeff Van Raphorst, who was the Sun Devils uh, Rose Bowl winning quarterback back in 1986. Um, he called me on my cell phone. And that, that was my first memory that I, that I regained. And once I got my memory back, I was, I was in no pain whatsoever, um, no physical pain. But they decided they wanted to admit me and keep me in the hospital. So I ended up staying two nights in the hospital. And that's the only time in my life I've ever been in the hospital. And as you said in the intro leading up in your question, uh, the condition that I was diagnosed with was uh, something I'd never heard of. It sounds more like a defunct airline, transient global amnesia. But it actually is a condition, when you look it up on Wikipedia, it's basically two to eight hours of short-term memory loss. And as I don't think they really have a definitive sense of exactly what causes it. They say it can be brought on by emotional stress in women and physical stress in men. And I was going through physical therapy exercises. But as you know, when you go to physical therapy, the exercises generally aren't super grueling. And the ones I was uh, having for my you know, low back core strengthening uh, were not overwhelmingly uh, grueling either. But um In any event, uh, it's two to eight hours of short-term memory loss. I I guess I think I remember recognizing like my wife and I think my adult daughter was in the hospital room at the time. She was there. And so, you know, you recognize like people and I think you know who you are, but you don't remember. I don't remember what happened in the previous four hours. And it's almost like, you know, like, you know, those 18 minutes of Watergate tapes that got erased. It's almost like four hours of my memory tape or my memory bank got erased. And I still have never reacquired any memory of what happened in that period of time. The the fortunate thing is that they say that uh, conditions like that, that that TGA um, is 80% likely to never recur. Uh, It's it's a strange, strange uh, phenomenon when it strikes you. But the science indicates it's uh, 80% likely to never return. Ironically, it typically hits people, the typical age of a TGA sufferer is in their 50s and 60s. And the scary part for me is that um, 
I read somewhere where the average age of a TGA sufferer is 62, and I had just turned 62 the month before. So that was a crazy experience. And I ended up missing, um, I ended up missing, I knew I wasn't going to be able to work Arizona State's football game with Colorado that Saturday because they were keeping me in the hospital until Friday. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to work that game. And my wife did a great job of, you know, my wife is really outstanding in a crisis. You know, she's the type of person that, you know, can rally people around her and get things done when people all around her are losing their heads. And, and she was very calm and was able to, at some point after taking me to the hospital, getting home, and she was in contact with the people, you know, like our engineer producer and, you know, my, the people that run our radio network and she got copies of my spotting boards and my notes to them so that they could pass them along to uh, the gentleman, a, a longtime Phoenix broadcaster and our ASU women's play-by-play announcer and a terrific guy and a terrific sportscaster. His name is Jeff Munn. Uh, Jeff filled in for me uh, on the Colorado game. And then the next week, Arizona State was going to have a home game against Washington, and it was a big game coming up. This is like mid-October of uh, 2013, and I was really looking forward to the Washington game. And the neurologist who took over my case said, you know what, Tim, I think you really ought to take another week off and just rest. And uh, and so I did. So I missed two games. But the uh, Washington game, I actually went to it with my son and daughter. My son is a diehard. I have a 37-year-old son who is the uh, co-owner of the College Bar and Grill in downtown Tempe and a super avid Arizona State sports fan and has his own podcast, in fact, a podcast called Speak of the Devils. He and a fellow named Brad Denny, my son, the name is Joe Healy. Um, They do a wonderful podcast that is mostly themed on Arizona State football. But uh, in any event, I got to go to the game with Joe and my daughter, Katie, and it was the first time in, I think, over 30 years that I'd been to a Sun Devil sports event as a, a Sun Devil football game as a fan. I've had no recurrences since, although I will tell you that every so often I will just stop for a split second and try to remember something. Just remember like what I did, you know, an hour ago or try to remember the score of an Arizona State basketball game I called, you know, in January or just try to remember something just to make sure that the memory is still working. And to me, that's one of the ultimate ironies of the whole thing is that basically I lost all memory for four hours when memory has been one of the best things I've had, but a very bizarre occurrence. Very strange. So I'm going to ask you one more question because you've already given me a whole bunch of your time and maybe two. This one can will sure. probably be Whatever short. You need. Arizona State has one of the more unique uh, student section traditions at basketball games with their curtain of distraction where they have a curtain and then they pull it back and something weird is happening behind it to distract the players. <laughs> How often yes. do you incorporate that into your broadcast and what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen behind it? Um the um, we we try to mention it at least once. I think you know because it's, it's it's been going on so long that maybe we don't reference it as much anymore because it it's it's it, you know it's been in existence now for I think five six seven years maybe even longer. I'm not exactly sure when it started. I, I still think it's an ingenious idea and so much fun. I don't know if it's the weirdest thing that's ever been behind the curtain, but I think the most compelling sight was the night that uh, Olympic gold medal swimmer Michael Phelps 
was behind in his Speedo swimsuit because uh, Michael <laughs> Phelps' longtime personal coach, Bob Bowman, is and has been for the last few years the head swimming coach at Arizona State. And I don't think he is still, but for a while, Michael Phelps was almost like a, a consultant uh, for the swim program at Arizona State. And it was during that period of time that they were able to get him behind the curtain. And that was one that, I mean, that, that went viral when that happened. So that definitely, I don't think it was the weirdest thing. Uh, I don't even know what I'd say is the weirdest thing. You have, you have some, sometimes they'll have students with, dressed up as unicorns, you know, that come out. I mean, it's all, all kinds of funny stuff. But uh, without question, the most compelling sight was that of uh, Michael Phelps behind the curtain. In doing research for this podcast, I don't usually talk about it unless there's something unique in the process. But what I found looking up Tim Healy on Google is that there are a lot of prominent Tim Healy's. Uh, I believe there's a beat writer for the Mets, a televangelist, uh, a whole bunch mm -hmm. of different ones. And I just wondered, are there any uh, scenarios where you have ever been mixed up for the wrong Tim Healy? Oh, I think there's uh, uh, probably a couple with that, that beat writer you're talking about for the Mets. In fact, there was kind of a fun thing a year or so ago when uh, so I don't know if it was him or someone who follows him or follows me or something, but they were trying to get a little competition going. Who would have the most followers on Twitter? And I think because he you know, covers a big-time Major League Baseball team in a high-profile market like New York. I think uh, my namesake, Tim Healy, certainly uh, beat me out Twitter followers. I think I have somewhere between five and 6,000 Twitter followers myself. But uh, And if, anyone, if anyone's interested, you can follow me at uh, Tim Healy ASU uh, is my Twitter handle. But uh, um, but I don't. Other than that, the only the only thing I've gotten mixed up for Logan is years ago in Los Angeles. Um, I don't even know when. I'm guessing probably in the 50s, 60s, 70s. There was a sportscaster in L.A. I don't know if he was radio or television or both, but there was a sportscaster, big time sportscaster in L.A. named Jim Healy. And a lot of people have. Uh, when I came out to Phoenix, a lot of people have asked me, "Are you are you related to Jim Healy?" like thinking I'm his son or something. And uh, I, I'm not, I've never met the man. And of course, one of the keys, you know, for getting mixed up with me is make sure you spell the, the last name right, because my last name is spelled H-E-A-L-E-Y. And I can't tell you how many people when writing my name, leave off the second E and just write H-E-A-L-Y. And there was a time when I actually quasi considered getting my name legally changed because I got so sick of correcting people who were spelling it wrong. But uh, my family is from uh, from Ireland and uh, uh, that's how we spell it. And we're proud of it. But uh, uh, a lot of people do end up leaving off that second E. But uh, other than other than the Jim Healy thing and the little Twitter contest with uh, my Tim Healy namesake, uh, yeah, I haven't gotten uh, mixed up too much, although I think that Tim Healy was involved in one of those uh, stories last summer when uh, I think, um, you know, the manager of the Mets lashed out at a media uh, person, uh, you know, after after a, a loss, uh, um, which was really unfortunate. But but, yeah, I haven't been uh, haven't been confused uh, too often with uh, with my namesake, uh, more often as people thinking I'm the son of uh, former L.A. sportscaster Jim Healy. 
Final question. I ask everybody to share what I like to call a broadcast horror story. And that's where uh, not actually anything horrific, but just an example of something really weird or inconvenient, a horrible broadcast point, or just everything going wrong technically during a broadcast could be anything. Uh, share one of those from your 40-plus uh, years in the business. Well, I can tell you that for a good number of years, um, I had to do my own technical setup for Arizona State men's basketball. Football, we've always, you know, football broadcast at this level, you always need an engineer because they're fairly complex broadcasts from a technical standpoint. And in college baseball, you're kind of resigned to the fact that, you know, you'll have to do your own setup because it's not just it's not a real big budget item where, uh, you know, your 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 rights holder or your employers or your radio station, whatever it is, can afford to, you know, hire or outsource engineers to, you know, to do baseball games. And any more uh, with uh, more and more uh, broadcasters and radio going to a setup with, uh, you know, I'm sure those of us in the business would know the term the Comrex access. The access is a unit where you can basically broadcast over the Internet. And if you have a dedicated Ethernet line, it is really a pretty doggone easy setup and also, you know, pretty reliable in terms of the quality you get on the air. But uh, before the access, I did have to do um, my own uh, setup for a lot of I, I still do for baseball. And then uh, up until about three or four years ago, I had to do it for basketball as well. But uh now I'm lucky, lucky to have the services of an engineer. We have a great engineer at ASU, a guy named Sean Crespin, uh, who has been tremendous. And before him, we had another terrific engineer who was a native of the state of Minnesota, Mitch Otto, who was fantastic as well. But uh, Sean is our home game engineer. And in the last three years, Arizona State has been wonderful to allow us to outsource engineers on the road for men's basketball but i think the last year that i had to do the technical setup it was a new year's night uh we were playing a new year's night game just starting pac-12 conference play and uh it was bobby hurley's second year as head coach and arizona state had won uh its first game of the weekend and its conference opener at stanford on the friday night before new year's or actually the night before new year's eve and then on sunday night which was new year's night we're playing a game at california and it was a thrilling game, and it was tied with about five minutes to go, and we got knocked off the air. And uh, I don't know what it was that uh, caused us to lose our feed, but, you know, it's so hard to troubleshoot a broadcast technically when you're also supposed to be the guy on the air, uh, you know. But somehow we were able to get back on, but not until we had lost about three minutes of valuable game time, by which time California had built, I think, a double-digit lead and ended up winning the game. But those those kind of stories are just, um, just you know, nightmarish, and you get so stressed out, and, uh, you know, technical stuff happens. But, you know, it's just a matter of trying to, you know, deal with it uh, the best way that you can. So this isn't like a horror story, but maybe one little story I can tell you is I actually broke a pair of binoculars because I got frustrated with the way I called a play in a football game once. In 2007, um, Arizona State's football team, uh, Dennis Erickson, had just become ASU's head coach. Of course, he's now a member of the College Football Hall of Fame. And Dennis's first year was a great one at ASU. The Sun Devils ended up uh, starting the season 8-0 
en route to a 10 and 3 finish that year, and they were uh, Pac-12 co-champions along with USC in 2007. And as part of that 8 and 0 start, the Sun Devils went up to Stanford. I think it was late September of uh, 2007, and that was Jim Harbaugh's first year at Stanford. But it was before Harbaugh really got that program rolling. And Arizona State clobbered Stanford 41 to three. And in that ball game, uh, the Sun Devils had a, a freshman defensive back who ended up being a pretty darn good player at ASU, a kid named Omar Bolden. And I think he intercepted a pass and ran it back to about the Stanford five yard line. And he got tackled on the play by a young man for Stanford who I think was of African descent and had a lengthy name. And I kind of felt like I butchered it when I was trying to call the end of the play and who made the tackle. And the perfectionist in me, I got so angry with myself that I actually took my binoculars and threw them down to the floor in disgust. And that that stupid act by me ended up knocking out basically one of the eyes in the binoculars. So for the next decade, I used that binocular, that set of binoculars, only able to look out of one of the viewfinders because the other one was broken <laughs> just because I just got so angry with myself uh, over uh, something that probably most listeners wouldn't have picked up, you know, but that's kind of what I demand of myself. And I just got frustrated in that moment. And uh, it's kind of unfortunate it came in a win. But uh, one of the first things you'll learn in this business is that if the home team wins, then you had a good broadcast. And truer words were never spoken because I can't tell you how many times uh, over the 22 years I've been doing this job that I probably had a really, really good broadcast, did my job. We told the story, described the action, did so in an entertaining, interesting, informative, uh, knowledgeable way. And yet the Sun Devils lost on a heartbreaking three-pointer at the buzzer or a walk-off home run or a late touchdown. And you leave the, you leave the booth and you are down in the dumps and you're drained. And you feel like the world's going to come to an end, you know, not because you did a bad job, but because the Sun Devils lost the game. And then there are probably, I think there've been other times for me where I, I kind of feel like I butchered the broadcast, but the Sun Devils won an exhilarating victory and fans are saying, boy, that was a great broadcast. And I always think back to what Ray told me, if the home team wins, you had a good broadcast. And I sometimes think about that when I would compare what I do to say what a Joe Buck does, because yes, you know, Joe can leave the booth each week with the ability to judge his work simply on the quality of the show they put on the quality of the broadcast. But after a while, I would almost think that there's, it's almost like an emotionally antiseptic kind of feeling. It's empty feeling. It's like it hurts to see when you're the home team announcer, it hurts to see your team lose. But, you know, what's, what was that line from the wide world of sports intro, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat? Well, the agony of defeat can be tough after a tough loss when you're the home team announcer. But, boy, there's nothing like the thrill of victory. And when you're a network guy and you're doing, this, you know, games week in and week out, game in and game out, where you don't care as an announcer who wins or loses, to me, I would almost think that would get to be an emotionally empty kind of feeling or an experience after a while. Now those network guys make a heck of a lot more money, so they you know they, they can enjoy it from that standpoint. But it's an interesting uh, contrast, I think, when you compare the two and debate to yourself which you'd rather have. You know, after 
a string of tough losses, you know, you sometimes get worn out emotionally and you say you'd like to be a network guy and be able to do a game and not care about the, the W or the L. But, boy, I tell you what, maybe that's kind of the, the thing that makes it really special to be the hometown announcer is to experience those moments. Yeah, the losses are tough, but, boy, the wins, some of them is certainly uh, can be absolutely exhilarating. Well, that's going to do it for the podcast today. Once again, we are joined by Tim Healy. He is the radio voice for football, basketball, and baseball for the Arizona State Sun Devils. And Tim, thanks so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Logan. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on your favorite social media outlet. Remember, Apple Podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is always greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the pod. As always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.